You're listening to The Cultured Podcast, a weekly conversation hosted by me, Michelle Corey, that breaks down the barriers surrounding art, theater, travel, and more to bring a digestible dose of culture for all. the cultured podcast i'm michelle Corey, your host slash ringmaster slash crazy person and i'm super stoked that we are here together for another week where i give you some crunchy tidbits of culture to munch on now say that three times fast (laughs) just kidding okay today i'm super excited because i have a very special person um as our guest it is kate kordsmeyer She's an international food writer. Um, She knows a whole lot about a whole lot. And she also uh, heads up the website rootandrevel.com, which is all about living a a holistic lifestyle, living well with balance um, through uh, clean eating, through making clean, non-toxic products for the home. I mean, in every aspect that you can imagine. Yeah, that's kind of what Root and Revel is all about, how to um, live a natural life and heal your body um, while still eating delicious food. That sounds wonderful. And it's actually a perfect segue into what's inspiring me this week. <laughs> it's butter coffee. Uh, yes. <laughs> I'm addicted. Right. Like, okay, so why don't you explain the recipe? Okay, it sounds pretty weird if you've never heard of it before, but essentially, instead of putting cream in your coffee, you put butter. Um, that's the basic gist of it. Yeah. The best way to do it though, is to blend it rather than just like stirring butter into your coffee because it makes it really frothy and creamy and it really tastes like a latte to me, but there's no cream in it. Um, and I use ghee because the lactose is removed from ghee, making it dairy free. Um, and there's a ton of other health benefits associated with it that I won't bore you with now. But um, you use ghee, and then you're, like, drinking this creamy latte that's dairy-free. And And it's it's so creamy. And the ghee that you suggest in the recipe is the one that I got, and it has Madagascar vanilla bean in it, which adds no sweetener or anything. There's zero sugar, but it's this, this... fragrance like when you make this steaming hot coffee and you blend it with the ghee that has the vanilla and I brew my coffee with a little bit of nutmeg and a lot of cinnamon yeah me too and so those aromas yeah and it's creamy and it just feels like uh, the best latte I could have ever yeah. made for myself. And then it's just like a bonus that it turns out to not only not be bad for you, but be really good for you. Yeah. And I think that's the perfect way to start talking about our main topic of conversation today, which is food customs from around the world. And we kind of all get this idea that food has an integral relationship with society. I thought it would be really interesting to start with how religion and food are so intertwined. Mm -hmm. Basically, every religion has its rituals with food. I grew up in North Miami where there's a large Jewish population and most of my friends were Jewish. So I would celebrate Passover every year. And what I find really interesting about the relationship between Judaism and food is that every dish has symbolism. Okay, so for instance... Uh, during Passover, which is a spring festival, and it commemorates the Jews' exodus from Egypt. 
Egypt. They were slaves to the Egyptians for a while. So there was a mass exodus and that's what this celebrates. And so on the table, on a Seder table during Passover, you're going to find three cakes of matzah, which is unleavened bread a roasted egg and a shank bone or some other kind of bone. And that is actually a reminder of the lamb that was offered up during the festival in temple times. Um, There's a dish of salt water where you dip challah bread. And that actually the salt water represents the Israelites tears. Wow. Right. I know. It's really interesting. And then there's even, um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, but haroset. And it's a paste made from almonds, apples, and wine. And it's meant to represent clay or the mortar that the Israelites used when they were building as slaves. Oh my gosh. I feel like I grew up Methodist and we didn't have dishes that were that deep. Where are your tears though? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) No, but it's really cool. And I actually remember uh, really enjoying those rituals because there's a very specific way to um, commemorate every single thing that's symbolized on the table. Mm -hmm. And then there's prayer involved. And it's a very familial environment. You know, you're you're there together honoring your ancestors. So it's a more history-based practice than it is let's call it, you know, religiosity. Um, right. Well, that's what I was thinking this whole time is that I feel like to a lot of people, Judaism is more of a culture than a religion. Mm-hmm. And so it makes sense that food is so intertwined in that culture because food is culture. It, exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's a huge component of it. Um, okay. So you said you grow, you grew up Methodist. So what were some of the traditions that you had surrounding food that are most memorable to you? I feel like we were kind of just like your standard, like white American (laughs) suburban family that would, you know, dying Easter eggs and we, you'd have either ham or lamb or, um, my mom is an amazing cook. So at, at Christmas we would, um, she would always make like a big beef tenderloin and things, but uh, like not a lot that was actually not just kind of like cliche, like yeah. a Christmas but ham. But that's the ritual. Yeah, I guess that's yeah. true. The Christmas ham, the Easter ham, and lamb, those mm-hmm. are all ritual Christian celebrations yeah. uh, that surround Christmas and Easter. The lamb is a recurring theme in Christianity, in Judaism, and actually in Islam, um, the lamb does repeat in religious rituals right. with food, which I find so interesting because there's so much overlap. Yeah. Um, now there's also within each religion contrast. So me, I grew up in a Latin household and every Christmas we'd have a big um, roasted pig that was uh-huh. stuffed with mixed rice with pork. Mm. I know. So gone. It is good. <laughs> we still do it. You know, like the typical idea of the pig with the apple in its mouth. Yeah. Sorry, vegans. Um, and like a whole pig. Yes, a whole yeah. or, or a half pig, like okay. Um, and like, then, would you take it out on a spit in the yard and like over a fire? How did you cook it? No, but a lot of Cubans in Miami do. Yeah, and there's a whole ritual surrounding finding the right pig, mm-hmm. um, and then bringing him home. Then you look. I just started thinking, like on the flip side, I didn't grow up Catholic, but my husband is grew up Catholic and like they have all these rules about food, but a lot of it's like what you can't eat, you know, no, only fish on Fridays, no fish on Fridays. I can never remember what the rule is, but there's, there's all these rules and it's like, you know, I don't, I don't really know where that stems from, but it's interesting that, um, 
food would tie into religion in that way. I believe that all stems directly from the Bible about like what you should and shouldn't eat on certain days and for certain celebrations. And that actually brings me to Ramadan, Mm -hmm. which I find really interesting. And I didn't know all that much about it until I started researching. And so for those of you who don't know, Ramadan is 30 days in Islam. Um, So Muslims celebrate 30 days of fasting. Um, And this is this is what I find so um, inspiring is they fast in order to give themselves space for atonement, gratitude for the bounty that they usually have, and self-reflection. So during moments of restriction, we can also find self-reflection. We can also find progress within ourselves. Um, so it actually kind of talks to your point about restriction, too. Yeah. Across different yeah. religions. Um, and actually during Ramadan, there's, uh, the pre-dawn family meal. And so these rituals begin forming these traditions about food begin forming surrounding the religious space because you have to eat at some point. So it's not obviously fasting 24 hours a day for 30 days cause you'd be dead. Right. <laughs> um, but it is, uh, fasting with li- very little food. And so I- in terms of like the westernized Muslims, they will start with a pre-dawn family meal called suhoor. That is when the family sits down um, for breakfast and it's like at 4 a.m. and you just have all these different like dishes, like a feast yeah. to start your day. And then there, you go through the whole day without eating or drinking anything. So this is wow. a fast of food and beverage, not even water. And then iftar is the meal after sunset. And so that becomes a a big ritualistic to-do as well, where you're sitting down with family and you get to enjoy some really indulgent things. But I feel like at the end of the day, even though we're talking about specific religions, all of this is just kind of proving that the concept that food brings people together. Exactly. Yeah. That's why I love food. And it's the one thing we all have in common, because even though our diets might differ, we all have to eat. Yes, we do. It's fascinating how similar and yet so different each culture's food is. I completely agree. And I think it's that, that, um, that same point that so many people make about togetherness, which is rather than pushing each other away because we share different beliefs when it comes to religion or spirituality, there's a lot of overlap mm-hmm. that can bring us together yeah. and, and we should share a table over it rather than, you know, shunning the other table. Right. Um, speaking of tables, <laughs> though, um, and people being brought together and the similarities, there are a lot of differences when it comes to social like etiquette yeah around food sure. throughout the world so you have traveled vastly but especially throughout asia what was one of the most um i would say jarring but not in a bad way uh, f- social food experiences that you had where you were like whoa yeah this throws me off Definitely Vietnam. Um, I mean, it's a pretty poor country, and we were in Hanoi, which is in the in the north, and it's communist. And um, you know, they don't have a lot of basic basic necessities that we have here. So, like, they don't have refrigeration. 
Um, oh, wow. So you would walk the markets and the streets, and everything is um, in the streets. There's not really, like, a lot of restaurants or, like, buildings. It's kind of just, like, stalls. Um, and all the food is just out. You know, it's not in cases. It's not, like, chicken breasts perfectly butchered and wrapped in cellophane. It mm-hmm. is a whole chicken with the feathers and everything still on. And the women do all of the work. The men were nowhere to be found. Um, and like what was so different other than the obvious was, you know, here we do have refrigeration and our, when we go to the grocery store and you pick up a thing of chicken, you have no idea what, like when that chicken was slaughtered and Mm -hmm. how it got to you. But there, because there's no refrigeration, they have two kills a day. And in the morning they bring in the first batch. And then in the afternoon they bring in a second batch. So the food is ridiculously fresh. Wow. Which, like, I think is sort of the opposite of what you expect because when you're walking around and you're thinking, like, everything's just sitting out here and it's, like, hot out and it's just open air and everything. But then you realize, oh, because this chicken was literally killed an hour ago and we're going to eat it now. And, you know, you, oh, don't, yes. you don't go to the grocery store and like, go to Costco and do a big shop for the week. Mm-hmm. You go and you get what you're going to eat right then. Um and it really made me feel at once um, really lucky to be American and to live in the kind of food culture that I do. And then also way too spoiled and <laughs> right. way too disconnected from what we eat. I found some really interesting um, social customs from around the world. And I'm sure that you know a few of these. Um, first of all, I love Ethiopian food. Oh, Have you had? me too. Oh, well, so I used good. to live in D.C., which has the largest Ethiopian population outside of Africa. What? Yeah. What a lot of people don't realize is that in Ethiopia, actually also in India um, and parts of Asia... Um, you don't eat with your left hand. Yes. <laughs> why? Do you know why? It's poopy. <laughs> yes. To put it more eloquently than Kate, um, your left hand is, so it's a divided work between your hands in those cultures, and your left hand is reserved for cleaning yourself after your bowels movement. Right. Well, and there's no toilet paper. Okay. So then the right hand is for eating because, as you can imagine... Your left hand is not considered clean. (laughs) Now, I know what you're thinking. If you're a lefty, what do you do? You starve. I'm just kidding. (laughs) You use your left hand, but then your right hand has to be reserved for hygiene. Yeah. Um, So, you know, in Ethiopia, they eat... um, Everything with their hands, too. There's no utensils. No utensils. There's only one possible utensil, and it's injera. (laughs) Which is food. (laughs) Right. Spongy bread deliciousness. Mm, Can you eat injera? What's injera made from? So it's actually usually made, I believe, from millet. um, But they make the traditional way to make injera is gluten free. Really? Yeah. Good to know. Yeah. There's a great. um, There's a great. There's actually a few great Ethiopian restaurants in Atlanta. One of them, Desta, is amazing. Mm. But Desta, I would say, is like a more hip Americanized version. Um, Yeah, I could see that. Cafe, I think it's called Art Cafe in Castleberry Hill, is amazing. Oh, okay. We got to go there. Yeah. Um, Because it's very traditional. In fact, when you order a coffee at the end, they roast the beans right there in front of you over an open flame, and it takes a while, and then they bring you the coffee from the roasted beans right there in front of you. 
is just so amazing. Cool. Yeah. Ethiopians find it very bizarre that we eat on individual plates in the U.S. and yeah. in, in other westernized cultures because it's all about sharing mm-hmm. the meal there. And so you share from one large platter, right. basically. Right. That actually brings me to another interesting custom. So in many Asian cultures, um, but specifically, I believe, in Korea and Japan, you shouldn't serve yourself yeah. anything, um, in, especially beverages. You, right. It's considered disrespectful, right? Um, I think it's also considered bad luck. Like, it's oh. really bad luck to pour your own sake. Wow. And so you basically... It's your job to pour other people's, and if you want some yourself, you got to ask. Right. Or hopefully, the other people at the table recognize that you right. need a Start drink. Start paying attention, and they, like, yeah. So it's interesting, and probably goes again towards like Eastern cultures being um, just more aware in general mm-hmm. of you. Ha- you're not just paying attention to your own self and your own plate and glass. You're looking around the table and making sure everybody else has what they need. Right. And so, yeah. When, and once you kind of get into the habit, like we, Matt and I learned this at our favorite sushi restaurant. So now, you know, we're always watching each other's sake glass to be like, Oh, do you need some mm-hmm. more? Um, but you know, you have to get into the habit because if you were raised in the South, um, I mean, nothing against the South. I'm just going based off of my own experience. Like you're not doing that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think also maybe if you're the host in Latin culture, it's very much that, but for each other, it's, it's like Asian cultures where you're always looking out for everybody else almost compulsively, mm-hmm. um, which also kind of segues into the clean plate syndrome uh, as I've dealt, yeah. dubbed it. <laughs> And the diverse meanings of a clean plate throughout the world. Oh, this is interesting. I know. I had no idea that in some cultures, it's actually disres- It's considered a sign of disrespect to wipe your plate clean, while in others, it's considered a sign of gratitude and that your host did a good job. So, for do you mean? When you say wipe your plate clean, do you mean to eat all the food on your plate or to actually physically wipe it? No. And thank you for clarifying. No, I mean to eat everything on your plate. Uh Um, So for instance, in India and Japan, when you eat everything off of your plate, it means that the cook did a great job, that the host gave you everything that you needed to eat. Whereas I believe in China, if you eat everything off your plate, it means that they didn't give you enough. And they'll keep refilling your plate until there's only a little bit left. Mm-hmm. Because if you eat everything off your plate, they take that as a sign of like, they didn't do enough for you. Right? Isn't that interesting? That is really interesting. Whereas... And then- as a Latina and growing up around all, a lot of Jews, like that is not the way. It yeah, works. it's like whether your plate is clean or not, you're getting enough to roll down a hill. Yeah, I was and, gonna say there's you know some joke about like Jewish grandmothers always <laughs> just like feeding you so much food until so you true. need a wheelbarrow to get out. Yeah, um, and in in my house, you know, it was like I don't know that it was really supposed to be a sign of anything other than like you clean your plate because there are starving children in Africa. Isn't that interesting? It's the idea of gratitude, I guess. It's like the bounty that we have here. Um, So yeah, the clean plate means so many different things across the world. That's fascinating. I did not know that. Right? I didn't either, Um, which is why I thought, you know, every culture is so vastly different. And while we have these overlaps, this is where it's interesting to talk about. In Korea, for instance, they, the fork isn't meant to ever enter your mouth. And so if it does, that's not 
that's not good etiquette. The fork is only there to push food onto your spoon, yeah. which then enters the mouth. Um, in Chile, everything, including fries, is eaten with a fork and knife, uh-huh. and using your hands is considered unclean. Yeah, so it's very, very interesting. Eat, who eats fries with a fork? That's crazy. Not me. Not you. <laughs> Sometimes I like to feel fancy. (laughs) Fancy. I would feel really freaking fancy eating fries with a Especially one fry at a time. There are some customs that I came across. Okay, this has got to be my the funniest culture I came across. And I am not laughing at a culture. I'm laughing with With a culture. culture. (laughs) Because they they know it's weird. It's Brits, so they can laugh at themselves pretty well. But okay, so apparently in Britain, you only pass port to the left when you're drinking port. And so not only is it terrible to pass port to the right, and no one really knows why. (laughs) They think it comes from like naval traditions, but you pass the port to the left and if it stalls, so like if you are not passing the port on, (laughs) this is what you say to the person hogging the port. Okay. You say, do you know the Bishop of Norwich? Unfortunately, no. <laughs> He's a very good chap, but he always forgets to pass the port. <laughs> I swear. But seriously, saying that, that whole script is a nationwide tradition. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that's kind of similar um, in Sweden. When our family friends are Swedish, and we actually spend Christmas Eve with them every year. And yeah. they have a lot of really cool traditions and amazing food. Um, but one of them is they drink this um, liquor called Aquavit, which is basically rubbing alcohol. <laughs> Um, it smells like nail polish remover. It tastes just like it. I'm not selling this yeah. well. <laughs> but it's something that you sip. You pour it into a shot glass and you sip on it as you eat pickled herring. Oh my God. Which pickled herring has to be one of my favorite foods in the world. Oh, really? Oh, it's so good. It's okay. so good. But they have all different kinds of herring. So there's like a potato casserole with herring and there's like a salad with herring. You put plain herring onto little toast crackers. and But the point is the aquavit. So there's a rule that um, when the host comes into the room, nobody is allowed to drink their aquavit until the host has made eye contact personally with you. Wow. So the host comes in and, you know, maybe says a little toast or something and then has to kind of look around the table holding her aquavit or his aquavit as she makes eye contact with each guest. My brother made the mistake the first year that he was allowed to drink. Um, (laughs) They, I guess he was like not paying attention all the prior years to see how people were doing it. And so they poured him a shot and he took it as a shot. (gasps) And like, it was not pretty. (laughs) That is so interesting. I didn't know that about Swedish culture. Actually, one, one last one that I wanted to cover is one that I've suffered through personally my entire life. So I've told you guys a little bit that I am half Colombian, half Argentinian. I was born in the U.S., but I was raised in a very Colombian household. Um, so and in Miami, which and in Miami as well. Right, it is South America. Yeah. Um, so even though it's like the southernmost part of the U.S., it's not the south of the U.S. at oh, all. Oh no. But one of the customs in Latin America, especially like Mexico, Colombia for sure, is haggling over the bill. I hate it. I hate it so much, I have to tell you, because that's my American side that comes out that I'm like, someone just pay the bill. (laughs) 
But when it comes to the table, it's actually customary to haggle over the bill because it shows an appreciation for the other person's generosity. And so it's like a battle royale. I can't even, it's like, no, please let me, no, 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 no. I will, please stop, stop. I will, okay, when, okay, fine. So how, who ends up paying? The one who's most stubborn. I think that's maybe not to the extent of like how fiery people might get fighting over it, but I think that's very typical of American culture too, that you would always at least offer to pay the bill no matter what. Right. Once. I love that about Americans. It's so much more straightforward. Hi, I'll I'll, I'll grab the check. And you're like, no, please let me seriously. And it's like, no, I want to. Okay. Thank you. Well, I think that was the perfect cherry on top of our Sunday of yum yums. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Kate, for being here. Thank you for having me. Obviously, this is a person who can talk about food all day and all night, and it's super interesting to talk to you about food. So thank you for gracing us with your presence and your knowledge and your charm. It was my pleasure. Etiquette, right? Yeah. We're doing so good. So polite now. We're so polite. Tune in for next week, and as always, keep it classy, keep it curious, keep it cultured.